Welcome to the October 2016 edition of Affiliates in Action. This special program features Laney Feingold, an attorney who's represented ACB, its affiliates, and many of our members many, many times over the last 20 years in various disputes regarding accessibility with large corporations across the country. The approach she uses is called structured negotiation and has been very, very successful and has evolved over the last 20 years. Laney's written a book called Structured Negotiation, A Winning Alternative to Lawsuits, which we'll talk to her about at length. We'll also be talking with Carla Wishable about a couple cool projects she has going on regarding the ACB website and how the affiliates can increase their presence on the ACB website and also how affiliates can use Minimal as a fundraising tool. Hi, I'm Rick Lewis with Rick Morin, and this is Affiliates in Action. We're talking with lawyer Laney Feingold, who has written a book about structured negotiations. What we're going to do is talk about that book, talk about uh, what structured negotiations are, structured negotiations versus lawsuits, the benefits and drawbacks, the whole thing. And it's going to be an interesting interview. I have no doubt about it because it's an interesting book. So, Laney, let's uh, get to the nuts and bolts. First of all, what is structured negotiations? Kind of a highfalutin term. What does it mean? We get the negotiation. Where does the structure come in? You know, uh if I knew I was going to write a book about it when we chose that name 20 years ago, I might have called it something else. But <laughs> it's a name that has stuck, and so there we have it. Uh, structured negotiation is a way of resolving legal claims without lawsuits. And it all began, I know the name of your show is Affiliates in Action, and that is exactly how structured negotiation started. Uh, it started with the California Council of the Blind, the California affiliate, and several blind individuals out here in California back in the 1990s. And there were no talking ATMs anywhere in the United States. And Steve Mendelson came to us and said, you know, if we have the new ADA. We really should have talking ATMs. And that was a legal claim. But instead of filing a lawsuit, we decided why don't we try writing to the three biggest California banks at the time? It was like before there were big national banks. So we wrote to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citibank. Um, when I say we, we had, as I said, the California Council of the Blind and a lot of blind individuals. Linda Dardarian of the Oakland Civil Rights Firm, who I've done so much of this work with, Goldstein, Borg, and Dardarian, and Ho is its name. We wrote to those banks and much to our surprise, they were like, you know, not right away with open arms, but eventually, yeah, let's sit down and talk about this. And fast forward to 1999-2000, they signed agreements for the first talking ATMs after, again, affiliates in action, went to ATM labs, we went around California, and then later we ran around the country giving feedback on talking ATMs. Towards the end of the ATM negotiations, the issue of online banking came up again because blind individuals taught us that if we don't make online banking accessible, we're not going to have independent financial access. 
So we started doing it for websites and it worked. And the reason it started to be called structured negotiation is because we wanted to be really clear that this is an alternative method to a lawsuit, not a weaker method. You know, a lot of times people call it pre-litigation negotiation, but I don't, I talk about in the book that I don't really like that term because it sounds like, you know, litigation is the real thing and anything you do beforehand is like before the real thing. Yeah, exactly. So we wanted a term that showed that it was a process, but it was a process with a structure. And that includes, first and foremost, having advocates who want to work in a collaborative way, sending a letter that's not threatening, but is welcoming of participation, having collaborative meetings, not doing negative press, waiting till there's something positive to report. And at the end, there's a settlement agreement, just like there is in the vast majority of legal cases that are filed. So it's a process with a structure, and that's what I try to share in the book. Lainey, uh, so much of the terminology you use in structured negotiation really shows the spirit of of the whole uh, process. Can you talk a little bit about the terminology and how it's different than terminology that, that might be used in litigation? Yeah, I have a chapter at the beginning um, about languaging because I think it's very important. It has become more and more important. If you're going to create a space of cooperation, you do that with words. So in lawsuits, the person who has the legal claim is called the plaintiff. Um, Unfortunately, in our society, there's a lot of bad feeling about plaintiffs. I do not share that. I think that people who have legal claims and use the court system to enforce them is a very, very important part of moving civil rights forward. Structure negotiation is a different way of doing it, but because so many of the companies we write to, they hear the word plaintiff and they have a negative feeling, even though we don't agree with that, we know it exists out there, so we use the word claimant just a small thing, but it's also a reminder to all of us that these are legal claims. You know, most of the work that I've done has been enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act, but this process of structured negotiation is not just for disability rights. The American Bar Association is the publisher of the book, and they really believe that it has application to many different types of legal claims where people want to work together rather than in conflict. So that's one example. Another example is just the word defendant. Usually the person you sue is called the defendant. And just one day, like about three years ago, I was, or maybe five years ago, I'm like, defendant. That has the word defensive and defend. And when we write to a company, say we're writing to a pharmacy about talking prescription labels, we don't want them to be defensive. We want them to be creative and in the mood to negotiate. So instead of calling people defendants, we use the term negotiating partner or just company or government agency. Same with opposing counsel. Usually we call in the legal system, the lawyer representing the other side. I don't even like to use the word other side, but you know what I mean? It's called opposing counsel, but we're looking for terms that will foster cooperation at every corner. And it's also, it's, you know, it is subtle and I'm curious as people read the book and I get feedback, especially from, you know, lawyers we've worked with for these organizations, I'm curious to whether they think that matters. Um, But in some ways, it matters to us as the advocates Mm -hmm. because 
if we're not thinking about people as the other, as the enemy, as defensive, then we're more likely to open up the space where solutions can be reached. As we get on here, I'd like you to uh, maybe provide an example of a situation where a structured negotiation took place, because many people may not even really understand what this is all about. It's an alternative to uh, to suing, basically, to, uh, to get a result one wants to achieve, I think I can safely say. And one thing I can also safely say, having been on the other end of a lawsuit, the wrong end of one, uh, as a defendant, is that when you're sued, it seems like an attack you know you get your weapons out you get your statements out you have demands made of you and you of course want to make demands on the other side it's not at all a collaborative environment now uh, what uh, is the difference in the way this feels versus the structured negotiation situation uh yeah that's all true and it's too bad that the legal system has sort of evolved in that way, but the structures really contribute to that. Like, for example, in a lawsuit, the way that the parties talk to each other is through depositions. When I was a young lawyer, somebody said to me, deposition's a hell of a way to have a conversation. <laughs> in structured negotiation, you know, we try to have actual conversations, especially in disability rights and technology access for blind people, it's really made a difference because on some of these issues, the organizations just really haven't thought about it. So, like I said, we started with the ATMs and that evolved into online banking as well as accessible formats like Braille bank statements. Um, Rick was involved in the Major League Baseball negotiation, which was a really good example of setting up a collaborative environment you know, there are still legal arguments out there, like, you know, does the ADA apply to a website? They're fading, but in 2008, when we first wrote to Major League Baseball, there were more of those arguments. And in an environment that encouraged conflict, it's quite possible that Major League Baseball might have decided to fight the whole idea. But instead, they became great partners and Rick was involved, I know, in some of those, well, I guess I have two Ricks here. Rick Morin was involved in some of those early calls where just getting to know people as people and getting to know the blind fans as fans and not as plaintiffs, I think, really contributed to Major League Baseball an organization that is now really a leader in digital access. So the people coming to you are... are customers basically people who want a good working relationship with an entity uh, like say major league baseball or a bank or uh, some other institution where they might have a hard time reaching the right people and getting the uh, result that they might want but they they're they're actually people who would like to have a good relationship with the company or the institution that they're dealing with, right? I think that's a very important point, and that's true across the legal spectrum. You can have a legal claim, like say you're just in the business world and you're always buying things from one supplier and you only have one supplier, and you end up in a legal dispute with that supplier, but you still might want to buy from them. 
but yeah, this legal claim that has to be resolved. I have an example in the book. We worked with the city of San Francisco on accessible pedestrian signals, and that was spearheaded by the Lighthouse for the Blind of San Francisco and the California Council of the Blind in the Independent Living Resource Center. And especially the Lighthouse had a lot of ongoing relationships with the city in different areas. They had a legal claim because the city didn't install accessible pedestrian signals, but they didn't want to screw up all their other relationships because, you know, especially in city government, there's public forums and committees and hearings and you have a lot of long-term relationships. So structured negotiation really worked in that environment to get a really strong and great accessible pedestrian signal agreement without squandering good relationships. One of the things I really like that you talk about early in the book, Eleni, is the risk of litigating uh, and that you may end up with bad law or, or you know, some interpretations where uh, you end up getting the minimum uh, of what the, what the law requires rather than doing more than that if you can build that collaborative relationship, that collaborative spirit. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, I want to be careful here because – Lawsuits have achieved a lot of good in the area of disability rights and disability right. civil disability right. civil rights. So I don't want my book to be seen as, you know, lawsuits are bad, structured negotiation is best. It's not about that. It's about yeah. having a lot of different tools at your disposal. And the tool of structured negotiation has been, you know, super effective in avoiding some potentially bad situations that could occur in lawsuits. We did a negotiation with the credit reporting companies for free credit reports that the American Council of the Blind uh, was the lead claimant on as well as blind individuals. And the lawyer for the credit reporting company was actually quoted on the back of the book. I don't know if I have it right here. And she's quoted in the book, the lawyer for TransUnion, and it was so refreshing talking to her while I was writing the book, because she was like, you know, if you guys had sued us, we probably would have gone into defense mode and exactly. figured out ways, you know, those are big companies. We did the deal with TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax, and it was brand new law, federal credit report, federal credit reporting act to provide free credit reports. and. Right. You know, credit to Paul Paravano in Boston, who he knew, you know, he knew these things are coming and he was like, I don't think they're going to be accessible. You know, we better be prepared. And right. sure enough, they weren't. And it's the kind of thing that you can just see a court. Sometimes courts do the wrong thing. Doesn't help anybody either side. You put it before a third party decision maker who doesn't know the issues as well as the customers or the company. Well, processes take time. Lawsuits take time. Structured negotiations, you don't just uh, walk in and, and have a deal, right? And, uh, and corporations often are large entities that don't necessarily always communicate well internally. How do you deal with that? And, and what are the time frames involved? I, I'm sure they vary, but what uh, situations have you had time-wise? 
Well, the last chapter of the book, to give a somewhat roundabout answer to your question, is called The Structured Negotiation Mindset. And in that chapter, I explore the different qualities that really contribute to the success of this process for the last 20 years. And the first quality I talk about is patience. Yes. Uh, The editor, I had a wonderful editor at the Bar Association to help me craft 20 years of work as a book, which was a whole project in itself. And he and I agreed, his name was Daniel Bowling, and he was with the part of the ABA that deals with dispute resolution, we agreed that we better not put that chapter first because many lawyers would see the idea of patience and say, well, I can't do this process, forget it. (laughs) But I'm hoping that by the time you get to the end and you see all the success stories that the, um, you know, my cases with ACB and the affiliates and individual blind people, but also other lawyers that are starting to use it um, in Boston, Dan Manning and Greater Boston Legal Services had uh, great success doing uh, disability access cases with Boston hospitals, with the Boston CIL. Once you see, and I've explained all the process, you can get to the last chapter and say, oh yeah, patience, I see why that would be helpful. And that's really the answer to your question about how much time it takes, because you don't ever really know. You can't predict. Sometimes internally, like you you said, Rick Lewis, can just take forever big issue in government with the San Francisco accessible pedestrian signals, we really had to exercise a lot of patience because to get stuff done in a government agency takes time, but also in the private sector. I'm sure delays happen too. Unexpected uh, uh, things crop up, I would imagine. Absolutely. And a lot of accessibility these days depends on third parties. So started with, not just these days, you know, with the ATMs, the banks didn't manufacture the ATMs. The city doesn't manufacture the pedestrian signals. A lot of websites have third-party content. Some companies use an outside vendor to build their whole mobile app. So there's a lot of moving parts. And if you don't take the long view that it pays to be patient, I use a phrase in the book, active patience, because I feel like patience is something that we decide to do on purpose, not just like wait around, twiddle your thumbs, but no, hey, if we're patient, we're going to get a better result here. And that's really been our experience. Yeah, I remember the first discussion, Lainey, that we had with the Red Sox. Um, You know, we were in, Stan Eichner and I were in talking to the Red Sox. I love your comments about Stan, that you you was thinking this may only work in California. Yes, I think Stan thought, (laughs) Stan Eichner, who's a great lawyer at Disability Law Center, we were asking them about elements of their website that, that weren't accessible, and, and their defense was, well, we have a third party, being MLB Advanced Media, that does all this for us. We have no responsibility in this. You need to go after them. And part of the dialogue became, we're not sure that you don't have any responsibility for this, but how can we together strike up a dialogue where we get some of these things changed because so much of what of the work you're doing with what you did with ATMs and stuff involved the third party so how did you navigate those minefields well you know it is a shortcoming in the ADA that you can't in many cases directly have a legal claim against the manufacturer of the product so this happened before I started doing 
accessibility issues with the blind community, I did a lot of work on wheelchair accessibility issues. And one of the things we dealt with was service stations. I did a deal. It was like pre-structured negotiation, but I talk a little bit about it in the book because there were some elements of structured negotiation kind of getting born there in those uh, national class actions with Shell and Chevron on all their gas stations. And there was a big issue because they didn't make the pumps, and it was really important that the pumps have the controls so that a person who used a wheelchair could reach them. So, you know, what? there are hooks in the ADA to get the, in the state laws, to get the companies to bring the third parties to the table. And when you're in solution mode, the legal arguments tend to fall to the background. Not that they go away entirely, but... If you're in solution mode and you see, oh, we need a vendor to help with the solution, it's more likely to happen. And that's happening in litigation, too. There were recently two important cases where the vendors got involved. One was with uh, the San Francisco Credit Union. Someone did a lawsuit for their online banking platform, and the platform used to be accessible, but... I like to say it was so-called upgraded to a downgrade because it was (laughs) so-called improved, but the access got broken. Um, So there was a lawsuit, and to resolve the lawsuit, the platform developer was part of the solution. Same thing happened in Boston, where you have a great attorney general who does wonderful accessibility work, and they did a case with the NFB on healthcare kiosks, and they brought the vendor in. So... And, you know, that happens to us, too, without uh, sort of high-profile naming it. Like, I know with Bank of America, who's been a wonderful partner to the ACB and the affiliates on accessibility issues forever. I was once at a conference in Austin, the Access U, which is a great conference for your listeners who want accessibility training. Um, And I was in the audience of a session and someone raised their hand and said, well, our company started doing accessibility because we're a Bank of America vendor and it's required. I was so happy. You know, it's not something that was like touted and didn't make any press releases, but I could just really see in a very concrete way that, whoa, this is making a, this is influencing the industry. One thing I say is like, you got to put it in there and you got to spell it out. Like I yeah. just had a new website built um, this year because I wanted uh, more of a platform for my book. And I had a wonderful WordPress developer who just, I loved her and she built a beautiful accessible site. And in the contract, we built in specifically that we're going to use WCAG 2.0, AAA for my site. Usually we use AA in our agreements. And also we built in the usability testing. It's part of the contract. And we said how many rounds of usability testing we were going to have with disabled users. By this question, I don't mean the specific names necessarily, but a lot of people have particular situations where they might feel aggrieved. But who makes an ideal claimant and what sort of a situation do you generally deal with in a structured negotiation? Well, that's a good question. And I'm going to answer it for the kind of cases I do. Because I'm mostly working on larger impact cases, I think, and what I tried to do in the book is make the process of structure negotiation available to all sorts of people and all sorts of lawyers who might not be interested in, you know, changing the policy of Bank America, but might be interested in 
you know, resolving one person's claim who had a bad experience that violated her civil rights. So um, I think one of the key things what makes a good claimant is you have to be willing to work in this way. And when I first turned in my book for review by the ABA, they had somebody read it, who I don't know who it was in the East Coast, and said, you know, she doesn't write anything about how she gets the clients to want to be cooperative. You know, she has to write about that. And I realized that, you know, I've been doing the work for so long that the people who call me want, they're, they're like me. You know, they want to work like this, whether they're individuals or organizations. They believe in collaboration and being cooperative and being reasonable and understanding. For example, one of the things I write about in the book is that sometimes big results come about by small steps. Right. Not every not everybody wants to work that way. Or, you know, we don't do a negative press release when we write a letter to a company. We wait till there's something positive to say. Not everybody feels that's how they want to do it. Some people feel like they want to get a lot of press attention and that's a way to change a company. So the very first thing to make a good claimant is that you want to work in this in this manner. So I was glad the guy said that about the book because then I went back and you'll see in the book there's a lot of, I talk a lot about that and quote some of the individuals who have been instrumental in a lot of the cases and you know they just say this is how I prefer to work. I'm not a confrontational person. I would rather take the extra time and get to know someone to build in the accessibility in a more deeper way, things like that. Right. And it's about the solution. And yeah, I mean, if there is some monetary um, part of the settlement, that's great. But, but I think all the people that I know that have been involved in structured negotiation are more interested in the solution than they are anything else. Yeah, although I do have a chapter about negotiating for money, and many right. of the disability rights claims do include uh, claims for money as well as the fix, claims for attorney's fees, and so the process has been very successful in that regard as well. It's more like, you know... Some, I think I say in the book, some lawyer wrote me and said, well, I have a client. I really want to do structured negotiation, but she's really mad and she wants to bring public attention to how she was wronged. Totally legitimate, probably not going to be the best strategy for her to pursue structured negotiation. Right, right. Yeah, of course, when a company has already been vilified in uh, the press and in the Twitter sphere and everywhere else, they might not uh, necessarily be as inclined to cooperate. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, when I was talking to the lawyers who represented the companies we've negotiated with, many of whom uh, spoke to me but didn't want to be quoted even anonymously, but one person who was pretty high up in a pretty big company said, the negative press release is almost worse than the lawsuit. Right. right. Because I believe that. The lawsuit, especially in a big company, it gets assigned to some low-level lawyer and, you know, there you have it. Whereas the negative press release, that could be up to the chairman of the board. Well, I also wanted to ask you, when is it preferable to sue? That's a tool. When do you use that instead of structured negotiation? I can't make a sweeping answer to that because when a client comes to a lawyer, they come with a problem. And it's up to the lawyer to look at the various strategies that are available. For example, you know, if you had a class action employment case and you were seeking back pay for thousands of people, that's not something that's 
probably or ever going to be effective in structured negotiation because there are some things that entity just won't do unless a judge says you have to do this. And, or I use the example, you know, the Olmstead case or marriage equality. You know, marriage equality needed a Supreme Court result. You couldn't individually negotiate with every single state. So there's issues like that. There's also the question of making legal precedent and the impact that that has. I talk in the book about when you just settle a case, you don't make legal precedent. Most cases that get filed don't make legal precedent. But if you want to make legal precedent, you're not going to do it in structured negotiation. And I have a checklist to think about that. Like, what about industry precedent? And as I said, with that conference where the person said, oh, we're, we have to be accessible because we work with Bank America. I've seen it time and again where we can't get a company to move off the dime till we get another company in the same field. Right. To do something. And then everybody wants to do it. Or people have permission. You know, some companies, just like some people, are more risk averse or more cautious. So I believe in industry precedent. I think it makes a difference. But sometimes there's some issues you want you want legal precedent. And of course the other thing is it takes two to tango. So the claimant may want structured negotiation, but the company may say no. Right. And in the book, I try to give over a lot of different ways to get the companies to say yes. And we've been successful in the affiliates of ACB and our clients have been successful with that. But sometimes, like we had to do a lawsuit against JetBlue Airways because they're not covered by the ADA. They had their own law and they basically said to us, not basically, they did say to us, we won't negotiate with you. Sue us. So we had to. So much in the book that struck me was just the evolution of the whole process of how to engage someone in structured negotiation, you know, how how you wrote your initial letters versus how those letters changed over time, and uh, I, I found that just, just very, very interesting. That's true. Our first letters, well, we didn't call it structured negotiation, and we it was very, they were very aggressive letters. And Linda's firm is very skilled at litigation and now very skilled at litigation and very skilled at structured negotiation. At the time, you know, it was a very big litigator in the civil rights field as they remain today. And so sending a letter on their letterhead, we even attached a legal complaint and said, this is what we're going to file if you don't. And so those cases were successful. So I guess you could say structured negotiation doesn't need a cooperative tone. But in fact, I feel the cooperative tone letters get things done faster. And while the original letters did work, the current way we do it, I think, is much better. Equanimity. Does that have some type of legal um, definition? Or is that are you talking about that just uh, as an attribute of people uh, that, that are doing structured negotiation? That is a very good question and a very, you know, shows a good careful reading of the book. Again, that like patience is in the last chapter because right. we didn't want to scare away lawyers who may not think of themselves as having that quality. To me, it's a quality that has to do with remaining calm as things swirl around you. Right. And not being triggered and not being reactive. 
I find for myself, I think having practiced law in this way for 20 years, I am better at that. I don't think it came naturally to me, but the more I have found it valuable, the more I have tried to practice it. And I talk a little bit in the book about meditation or other mindfulness practices as strengthening that quality. And there's been a lot written about that in many fields. The ABA published a book this year called The Anxious Lawyer, which is about meditation and mindfulness for lawyers. And there's similar types of books and programs in higher ed and you know, business, Fortune 500 companies. Um, So yeah, so equanimity, it's just, I think I give the example in the book, we had this lawyer who, he like, he was tall, we're short, Linda and I are short, this guy was tall, (laughs) he's like looming, standing the whole presentation, looming over us, you know, telling us we're well, you'll have to read the book to see what he exactly said. I think I put it in there. Yeah, no, I, that, was and, a, that was a fun part. And that's like equanimity. You know, it's like not saying, you know, equanimity <laughs> is just kind of, for me, it's like realizing, okay, this is what this guy is saying. I'm not going to let it get me off track. I'm going to stay focused on the goal of solution. What happens to the claimant? Is he just on his own to let you represent him? Does he have any conversations with the people you're negotiating with? Does he uh, did he or she provide uh, input into the process in uh, face-to-face meetings? How does that all work? In the best cases, the clients have a large role in coming to solution. Uh, sometimes things tend to be more lawyer centric, but Major League Baseball is a good example. The talking ATM cases where blind people were in the ATM labs giving the feedback. Our credit reporting case, the reason it went so well is because we had a meeting in Oakland in Linda's office and Lucy Greco was there with her computer showing how the online stuff worked. Susan Mesrui was representing ACB at the time. Paul Paravano was in the call. Jeff Tom was there. And I think the companies saw, like, whoa, these are real people with real issues. We better fix this. So no matter how the clients are involved, they're always involved, you know, at the time of a settlement offer and along the way. Talking prescription labels is another good example. Um, in California, we had a good meeting during a California Council of the Blind convention when Donna Pomerantz was president with a pharmacy company to test the device that they wanted to use. And blind people gave feedback. We always try to build feedback into the agreements, and the agreements tend to be stronger when there's feedback during the process. What if the company you're dealing with doesn't meet the agreement? Does that happen to you? Well, the end of the negotiation is always a settlement agreement. Um, And that settlement agreement, just like if you signed a settlement agreement at the end of a litigation, um, it contains certain obligations and there's a certain amount of time to do it. Now, I have a whole chapter in the book about how those agreements are enforced and sometimes everything is hunky-dory and everything goes smoothly. But when you have a very large company with 
a solution that's impacting every store. And we saw this a lot when we worked on point of sale cases. Uh, we did we did I think twelve cases with big companies to have keypads instead of flat screen devices, so blind people could independently enter their PIN. And some of those companies, and I write about this in the book without naming who was a good player or bad player, but you know when you have seven thousand stores and low wage workers and a lot of turnover. Oh yeah. There's bound to be situations where somebody walks in and the staff doesn't know about how the technology works or can't find the technology or whatever. So in some of those cases, um, I talk about different strategies for resolving the claim. I mean, there's always a procedure for a breach of contract. Usually we don't have to go there. Usually we can have meetings and conversations, explain what the problem is. And this is good for your listeners. All the agreements really depend on blind people using the services that the ACB and the affiliates have worked so hard to negotiate. Absolutely. And giving feedback when things go wrong. Because Lynn and I don't know. You know, we're in our office. We don't know if the store manager screwed up at a safe way or, you know, we just don't know. So we really count on people. It's a big part of how individual advocates can become involved in structured negotiation and holding the feet to the fire of people who sign the agreements. What if you're in the middle of a negotiation and somebody else sues the very people you're negotiating with? How do you deal with that? That hasn't happened. And one reason I think it hasn't happened is because we always try to convince the organization that we should be public about being in structured negotiation. And there's a case that the blind community is working on with Lyft that I'm not involved with. But the lawyers in that case is Tim Elder and a firm in uh, San Francisco, Michael Bean and Michael Nunez and perhaps others, maybe disability rights advocates too. Anyways, they put out a press release that's saying, you know, Lyft is engaging in structured negotiation with the blind community over the service animal issue. I thought that was really smart and I put it in the book because that way it's like, okay, we're taking care of this and it may not be done yet. Now, as we know, we can't control every lawyer in the United States. However, I have found with our issues that if we put the word out and, you know, new people have problems, they come to us, we talk to them, we say we'll include them in the solution. We haven't had, we haven't had that problem. In some cases, the other side, so-called other side, has said, well, we don't want to do this because some members of the blind community don't like it. And in those cases, we say, you know what, let us worry about that. We have a legal claim. Here's a solution that these people want. And that's also never, never been a problem in the end. It certainly sounds to me that one thing that I think all of this has done is build a case why affiliates should read your book. And I, I think it's absolutely wonderful that, that it's out on Bookshare. Let's say an affiliate, how do you recommend uh, they engage somebody um, that could evaluate whether or not structured negotiation is a good approach for them? Well, one of the things that I find over the years is that I might get a call from an affiliate who knows there's a problem, but they don't have the real people on the ground to say, I went to the place, I'm a member, I tried the website, I couldn't use a mobile app. Like, it's more of an idea right. than 
an actual thing. So my first bit of advice is to really use the possibility of structured negotiation or, or any legal process as an organizing tool to say, hey, we have a problem in our state with this. Who has experienced this? Tell us when. You know, tell us which location or tell us if it's a website problem. Too often we hear, oh, the website is a mess. But as lawyers, we need to know what were you trying to do that you couldn't do. You know, maybe you just couldn't get past the homepage. But often people in the strongest kinds of cases are people trying to do an actual task. You know, pay a bill, research a doctor find an establishment and they just can't register on a site, sign up for a rewards program. You know, that kind of detailed information, the affiliates can really help themselves and any lawyer regardless of the strategy by putting that together. And then the other piece is it's really important for the individuals to try to fix a problem themselves before they call a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Because in this day and age, first of all, if you can fix it yourself, great. That's all the better. Because once you get lawyers involved, things take longer even if you're in structured negotiation. <laughs> so it's really important in structured negotiation because when we write a letter, one of the first things we hear is, oh, really? You should have told us. We would have fixed that. And we need to be able to say, or you know, they'll say, you should have told us. Because we're already working on it. Yeah. And yeah. we're like, you know what? You should have told that to your clients. because I mean, your customers or your members or your, you know, the general public. Because if you had, they wouldn't have had to call a lawyer. So that's the two biggest things the affiliates can do is get some real specifics on the ground and have a, a record of what has been tried, you know, how it's tried to be fixed before the lawyers were called. Lainey, do you have an intake process? I mean, do you feel calls from from any affiliate that would want to explore this? Let's say, you know, an affiliate thinks they've got a case. They've done their homework. They're well organized. Can they pick up the phone and call you and you know, try, Rick, to, try, try to initiate something? I've always tried to be that person. And I've always, you know, I, I think you all know, or maybe your readers don't know, you know, I work for myself. I don't have any staff. Um, yet I've always tried to at least have an initial conversation with people. Um, one good thing about putting the book out there and talking more about structured negotiation over the last couple of years is starting to be lawyers in other states around the country besides me and Linda who know how to work in this way and are, are doing a terrific job at it. So there's more people to be able to refer out to. Um, I am feeling slightly overwhelmed with the book marketing, so I may not be as uh, quick. You know, I'm always happy to talk to people on the phone. I may not, of course, I won't be able to help um, everyone, but, you know, I'm happy to talk to people. There's a lot of good National Disability uh, Rights Network offices, NDRN, P&A offices around the country. Um, the Texas affiliate has now done a couple structured negotiations. Um, in Boston, like you said, you have Disability Law Center and the Greater Boston Legal Services. And in Illinois, you have Equip for Quality. They've done a lot of structured negotiations. So I'm not the... Right. By far, I'm not the only, and of course, it's Linda in her office. Um, but yeah, people can feel free to call me. And people should know if, you know, they call me or they email me, they don't get a response in a week, please contact me again. 
I always, even if I don't have time to do it and need to do a referral right away, I always respond to everyone who reaches out to me. And if I don't, I want to apologize in advance and call me back. Your website's easy to remember. It's lflegal.com. And on that, you've got a nice contact form, uh, which I've noticed. Um, Let me say a quick word about why it's LF Legal. I'll, let me just say yeah, one please. quick thing. Um, the reason I have an easy-to-remember website is because um, sort of a feature that's important in structure negotiation, which is user input. So um, a blind friend of mine, Josh Mealy, who lives out here, many of your listeners will know, um, he's a friend of mine. And when I was first putting up my website in 2008, I was going to call it laneyfeingold.com. And Josh is like, you can't call it that. No one will know how to spell Laney. No one will know how to spell Feingold. And it won't fit It won't fit on a line of Braille. So we came up with the LF Legal, and it fits on a line of Braille. And I, of course, have Braille business cards. And now I have Braille bookmarks for my book. Um, and then Twitter came around, and now I can be LF Legal on Twitter, and it really became sort of a brand, even though I'm just like a one-person operation here. And that was all because I listened to Josh. There you yeah. go. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Lainey. You can learn more about Lainey and her book, Structured Negotiation, A Winning Alternative to Lawsuits, at Laney's website, which is lflegal.com, lflegal.com. Laney has some excerpts of the book that you can check out there as well. The book is available on Bookshare, and Rick Lewis and I have both read it cover to cover, and we both were very taken by it. The impression that it left with me is that many, many, many of the things that she talks about to uh, constitute a successful lawyer using the technique of structured negotiation are techniques and attributes that very definitely would help us all as advocates. Many of us have a lot of these skills innately. Many of us don't. And I think this is a very good read just to kind of understand what we might want to aspire to and how we may want to evolve our technique, our advocacy technique over time, just as Laney has evolved structured negotiation over time. I also had the pleasure to sit down with Carla Rucheville over the last couple of days to talk about some things she's got going on with the affiliates from the national office involving the ACB website and also the mini mall. Uh, They're both pretty exciting. Here's my interview with Carla Rucheville. Well, it's always a pleasure to have Carla Rucheville here with us on Affiliates in Action. Hi, Carla. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? Uh, we're doing great. Um, Good. You've been doing a lot of work with affiliates lately, and there's a couple of areas that I'd love you to talk about. Um, one being the web pages um, that affiliates can take advantage of um, off the ACB website. And the other one is. Um, the mini mall stuff. You've got a very cool mini mall program that's going on. So I'll just open it up and, uh, and I may ask you a question okay. or two, but why don't you take it from here? Okay. Now, both of these are new projects that have come about. The, um, the web page project uh, is a goal one project and began at the ACB National Convention. The mini mall project is brand new within the last month. And so I'll start with the web page. For a long time, 
probably at least three or four years, each ACB affiliate, unbeknownst to many, have had a web page that they could take advantage of. That web page has been used to basically show their contact information. So if you go to the affiliate area on the ACB website and search for, for example, in your case, Rick, Bay State, and you go down and look for information on Massachusetts, there will be a page there on the ACB site that has the contact information, and um, it's, it's sort of the same for everybody. But it may not have anything else on there, and it won't have anything else unless the affiliate submits the information to be included. Now, this is not intended to replace an existing website that the affiliate has. It's intended to enhance what is on the ACB site to to give visitors more information about an affiliate that they might want to know more about. And then to, if, if the affiliate has a, uh, a website of their own, to link that, to make it possible for that visitor to click right through to that affiliate's website. The Goal 1 project is structured in such a way that we can assist affiliates in creating their page. If they've never written a page before, if they don't have one, that's fine. We can put some basic information up there. A good example of what we can do is the uh, ACB Lions page, the American Council of Blind Lions page. Mm -hmm. And that is an example of an affiliate that uses the page in, in such a way that uh, it, it, it helps get information out about that affiliate, but that affiliate does not have its own website. The ACB of Maine has just updated their page through this program, and they do have a web page of their own. So you can take a look at that, too, and see how we structured that. Now, I will tell you that in both cases, the final page looks different from first the first draft of the page and that's where goal one and the um, PR committee want to really work with affiliates to help you get the most mileage out of every word on that page technically a web page can go on forever but you don't want it to do that because the reader isn't going to read thousands of words. So, you know, the idea is to pack as much information into the least amount of space, well, the least amount of words, but to space it so that it's attractive. So we would be most anxious to help people, and um, you can... You can uh, get more information on that by contacting me as chair of Goal 1. My email address is Carla, C-A-R-L-A, 40206 at gmail.com. Hey, Um, Carla, what is a Goal 1 project or a Goal 1 program? That's a good question, isn't it? Goal 1... There's, there's goal one, goal two, goal three, and goal four. Those groups are strategic planning groups that came out of the 2012 
board strategic planning process, and they are composed of board members who are interested in specific types of projects. The goal one emphasis is marketing, PR, ACB radio, the mini mall, those things that tell others about ACB. Let's touch on the mini mall project because this came, this is a good example of a project that came out of an ACB committee, the mini mall committee, imagine that. <laughs> and, um, and it was um, an idea that we had to try to partner with affiliates, especially those, not especially always small affiliates, but primarily small affiliates to help them create a fundraiser that they could do for themselves, but that we could help support. Um, and our our hope is to eventually have several products that affiliates can choose from to purchase through the mini mall at discounted prices, and then they can sell those products at what the price would be uh, if an individual were purchasing at the mini mall, and they get to, cre to keep the difference. We have the first project, uh, the first product out there and going, and it is a, an aluminum credit card case. Oh, cool. Very, very attractive. It's not just a metallic-looking thing. They come in different colors. Um, we are offering them with the ACB logo, and um, the affiliate can purchase them at about half price. Oh, great. And then, yeah, it's about 50% of what the selling price is on that product. Mm -hmm. They can order as few as 25 Okay. The item uh, that the actual price is going to be to the affiliate around six twenty five to six fifty for the ACB logo products, and they'll be able to sell them for twelve dollars. Um, they're a very neat little item because when you open it up, it has little compartments inside where you can organize lots and lots of cards and even put a house key in there, maybe a little bit of cash, and it becomes even a little mini wallet. Yep. So they're very very neat, and they will also protect your chip cards from someone who wants to steal your card number because they're aluminum. Yeah, now affiliates the, could, could buy that stuff to give them out to uh, as promos and stuff, right, if they wanted yes. to? as speaker's gifts. Yeah, um, sure. In fact, a couple of affiliates have contacted me and are doing just that. Um, now, in one case, the affiliate is putting their logo on the um, item instead of the ACB logo. When that happens, there's a couple of things that we have to consider. One, the minimum is at least 50 to okay. do that. Okay, that makes sense. The, yes, and the other is that sometimes if the logo is has too many colors in it or something, then we may not be able to reproduce that logo. But right. we, could, we work with them and try to... It doesn't have to be a logo. It could be their name on there. I mean, there's many different ways of, of making um, artwork that would, would emphasize the affiliate itself as opposed to just the ACB logo. So it's a very neat project. If this one is successful, and it certainly looks like it's going to be, um, we already have um, several hundred ordered. Um, and are in the process of working with affiliates on those. Uh, we we then want to 
introduce a couple of additional items. And, and these are all neat, Rick, because they don't go out of date, <laughs> you know? I yep. mean, they don't, you don't have to eat them by a certain <laughs> length of time, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> At least exactly. you better not. <laughs> exactly. There are things that don't spoil And there are things you can certainly give us, speakers' gifts, um, you know, any place that you want to spread the the news about your affiliate um, and or ACB, you can do that. So, and they're available in several colors. They come in um, red and blue, green, orange, black, silver, pink, and purple. And you can you don't have to order all of one color. Minnesota called me up and said, "Oh, does it come in Viking purple?" <laughs> and we checked and we said, "Well, yes, it's pretty darn close to Viking purple." And they said, "Then count us in." You know, <laughs> this is a brand new product. We've never sold it in the mini mall. We would have had it in um, Minnesota this last summer, but it was out of stock at the time. And we couldn't get them. So now they're in, and the plan is that we hope we have lots of them out there for the holidays. Great. Well, a few few are bound to come through the holiday auction, too, I would imagine, right? Actually, I'll tell you what we're (laughs) going to have in the holiday auction for the Mini Mall. We are going to be offering, we have a brand new, very nice computer messenger bag that will hold up to a 17-inch laptop. Wow. And... We're going to put one of those in as an auction item with one of our large power banks that are now back in stock inside for the auction. Cool. And uh, that should be a really popular item. So, uh, So if anyone is interested in getting more information about the, um, about the, uh, items through the mini mall, you can email me again at my Carla four zero two zero six at gmail dot com email. You can just use both of both that email for both the um for both the mini mall and for the web page and that will get the answers to both of those. I am all about have always been all about partnerships with the affiliates and I haven't I, for a long time I couldn't figure out how to make that happen. You know, and then the walk happened, and we started working with the MMS program a long time ago, the walk, and I was always an avid supporter of those things, and it just kind of hit us in the mini mall committee. Hey, we could, we could do this with affiliates, and it doesn't have to be a thousands and thousands of dollar project. This is something an affiliate can do if they've got 150 bucks to buy for the product, then they're, they're ready to go. Yep. You know, and and then they can order more after they're finished so they don't have to buy 300 at one time. Thanks for listening to Affiliates in Action. Special thanks go to Carla Rushevel, ACB's treasurer, and also to Lainey Feingold, an attorney who's represented ACB on numerous accessibility disputes and successful resolutions and author of the book, Structured Negotiation, A Winning Alternative to Lawsuits. You can learn more about Lainey and her book at her website, lflegal.com. Again, that's lflegal.com. On behalf of Rick Lewis and myself, Rick Morin, meet us at the affiliates. That's where the members are. We'll see you next month here on Affiliates in Action.